on this episode of Common Mystics, we discuss the fatal 1974 crash of Eastern Flight 212 and the astounding chain of events that led to the tragedy. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are common mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today's story comes to you out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, Jen, before we get into it. Yes. Can you please remind our listeners of our intention? We ask the spirits to lead us to a story previously unknown to us that is verifiable, but also, and most importantly, gives voice to the voiceless. And this story is absolutely my worst nightmare. It is chilling. I cannot. I'm sweating even <laughs> having, I'm like thinking about this makes me like my heart starts a beating. Like I get really nervous. So let's get right into it. I hear you. Let's just get past it. Let's do it. Okay, we were on the road. We were heading to Georgia. We were. From West Virginia, Virginia area. And we spent the night in an Airbnb outside of Charlotte. We sure did. Before we got to the house, I was already picking up vibes. I was feeling John Denver. And I felt like we were going to recognize our story because our voiceless would have a very familiar name. Mm, like a family name? Exactly. Interesting. So we get to the house. We get to the house, and in my head, I was hearing the song Daniel by Elton John. And I remember that I couldn't figure out why that song was going through my head. Like, I hadn't seen anything about Elton John. You know what I mean? Like, I couldn't find, what is it called? The golden thread of, like, why am I thinking this right now? And Mm -hmm. so I started saying the lyrics out loud to myself. And then I said out loud, so Daniel died in a plane crash? Just, like, out loud to myself. That seems like a breadcrumb. It seemed weird. Well, especially because I was feeling John Denver, who Mm. died in a plane crash. Good point. And at the time, Mm -hmm. I did not put two and two together. I was just puzzled by why I couldn't get that song Daniel out of my head. Right. Because John Denver comment was like 12 hours earlier. Right. Right. So I'm feeling important, notable death, children traumatized. I'm actually like, what had happened? Because it felt like a big deal. Yeah. And to me, a couple things kept shouting out in my brain, the name Daniel, mm-hmm. a plane crash, and then the idea of a brother dying. Mm-hmm. When you said that to me, I said, to you out loud. I'm like, definitely, this is a male voiceless energy that we're feeling. Yes, we both felt a male, almost someone male who had died in the crash is how it Mm -hmm. felt at the time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, we wrote all that down and didn't know what any of it meant. (laughs) As always. As always. As it turns out, you took the lead and you found this story, which is Friggin' crazy. Tell me all about it. Well, as it turns out, there was Eastern Flight 212 that crashed Mm -mm -mm. right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina in 1974. Would you like to know a little bit about it? Sure. According to WorldAviationFandom.com, Eastern Airlines Flight 212 was a regularly scheduled flight between Charleston, South Carolina and Chicago, Illinois, with a stop at Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. The plane was a DC-9. I don't know what it means, but it's a commercial large aircraft. Right. And on September 11th, 1974, during an approach to the intermediate stop at Charlotte, Douglas Airport, Eastern Flight 212 crashed at 7.34 a.m., killing 72 of the 82 people on board. Oh, my God. So, okay, so many things are running through my head. Yeah, I know. 
You already were afraid of flying before this story. True statement. My scariest flight, and this will be part of the detours, was when I was leaving by myself, going back to Michigan from out of Georgia when we had seen the Indigo Girls. Yeah. And that was the scariest. It was a little baby plane and it like dropped. And I was like, we're dying. So anyway, we'll talk about that um, on our Patreon page. Check out our detours on Patreon. Okay, so... So this is like, I'm, I'm really nervous about this. Tell me everything. What could have caused this crash? Was there something wrong with the plane? Uh, well, the answer would be no. According to the NTSB report, which is the National Transportation Safety Board. According to that organization, the aircraft was certified, it was equipped, it was maintained according to FAA requirements and regulations. So it was good to go. There was nothing wrong with the plane. And additionally, the gross weight and center of gravity were on point during takeoff at Charleston and during the approach at Charlotte. So the crash could not be attributed to the aircraft or to any of the functioning of any of its systems. Just the fact that they're talking about the gross weight in the center of gravity <laughs> makes flying seem so, so shanky to me. Like, no, like if some like, no, I don't want I don't want to think about if someone goes to the bathroom, like we're all going to die. Like, no, if someone goes to the bathroom where my head goes is I know I'm overweight. And I also no, I I know that I'm 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 a little heavier than I should be, and nobody you must be this weight to ride this ride. Well, well, pretty much because number one, nobody asks me how much I weigh when I get on the plane, and if they did, I would lie. So I'm not saying that's a good indicator, but nobody weighs me either, mm-hmm. and so you start to like you know I look around and I start to wonder like are we, are we in limits? And I'm talking to myself when I say that I am talking to myself like are we in limits like is nobody checking this do we roll over a big scale before we set off into the sky because we should we should just in case I know exactly what you're talking about because when I walk onto a plane people look scared automatically and they're they're looking at me like holy fuck no, holy no, fuck are we did we did we <laughs> did we account for the Amazon beast that just walked on this plane? I don't think you did. I don't think you did. Jill, the way they look at you when you're walking down the aisle. I when I have seat. to move my hip. And they're looking like, oh, not here. Oh, you're not going to sit next to me. Oh, I, I hope she doesn't sit next to me. Like, do you get that look? Because I get that look sometimes. I get terrified, sweaty eyed look. Like all like their eyes are like, holy fuck. Holy fuck. We're not going to make it. And then, you know, you know, they're being like, this bitch better not brought on luggage. Like she has met her requirement. She does not need to bring luggage with her. You know, her clothes are big, too. (laughs) Right. Right. Anyway, so this plane was within the weight requirements. That's my point. How was the weather? Was there any kind of like, it was it thunderstorming? What, what was happening? Okay, so there was some weather in Charlotte at the time. It was reported that there was a slight drizzle and some low patchy fog. However, this particular plane, our plane, Eastern Flight 212, was the sixth plane that morning to land at the airport without incident. So even though the weather wasn't ideal, it really wasn't identified as a contributing 
factor to this crash. Yeah, because five other planes. Right. Five others. Without okay. a problem. Mm-hmm. So air traffic control, the people on the ground that's flying you in, it's a stressful job. The most stressful job in the world, I would imagine. Did that attribute it to the crash? No. And actually, according to UPI Archives, which published an article on April 18th, 1983, the insurance companies were actually actively going after the air traffic controllers. Trying oh, to find, my God. Yeah. Trying to find fault with their, their work during the landing of this plane. And they actually sued the air traffic controllers. And the case was heard before the Supreme Court. Like the Supreme Court of the United States? The Supreme Court of the United States. Damn. However, the Supreme Court justices rejected the appeal from the 19 insurance companies that wanted the air controllers to help pay for the $25 million in settlements resulting from the crash of Eastern Airlines 212. $25 million is an insane amount of money for 1974. It's the same amount of money now, but like, damn. But I mean, 72 people died. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the flight. Like, what could have happened to make this plane go down if it wasn't air traffic control, it wasn't the airplane or its functioning systems, and it wasn't the weather? We need to dive deep and figure out what the actual F happened. Talk to me. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about the flight and what was happening. In the cockpit, we had 49-year-old pilot Captain James Edward Reeves. Now, he had been a member of the Eastern Airlines since 1956. So he had 18 years of experience with this airline. And during the early part of aviation itself, right? So he was kind of grew up, like his career was growing up in parallel with the airline industry. Yeah, I would say so. Mm -hmm. He also had a lot of flight hours under his belt, as you would expect for someone with this amount of experience, over 8,000 flight hours. And notably, Jill, about 4,000 of those flight hours were on DC-9s. Yep. Which was the type of jet he was flying on this occasion. So he had plenty, Mm -hmm. plenty of experience flying this plane. Actually, he was flying planes in World War II before he was a commercial pilot. Mm. So he was flying most of his life. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, joining him in the cockpit was first officer or co-pilot who was a 36-year-old named James Daniels Jr. And he had been with Eastern Airlines since 1966. He had over 3,000 flight hours under his belt, again, including over 2,500 on the DC-9. So both the pilot and his first officer were both very familiar with this aircraft. Okay. Is there anything else we should know about the flight crew? Yes. Now, Captain Edward Reeves had not actually been scheduled to fly on that Wednesday morning Mm -mm -mm. on 9-11, 1974, because Captain Reeves's birthday was Friday, September 20th. He wanted to spend his birthday at home with his family and so had switch shifts with someone else. We've all done that. Yeah. Instead of flying on the weekend, he took the midweek trip. Mm -hmm. Not just this flight, but he like picked up additional flights. So he can make the schedule work so he can be at home. So that's our crew. Now, also responsible for cabin safety and service were two experienced flight attendants, 25-year-old Eugenia Hurth and 26-year-old Colette Watson. They seem young AF. How much experience could they have had? My goodness. Yeah, good question. I don't have that in front of me, but I will say that only one of them would walk away from this crash alive. Oh, 
that's ominous. Oh, I already know what's going to happen, but still, I just don't even like thinking about. It. OK, go on, go on, go on. The first 20 minutes of the flight were completely routine, Jill. Beginning at 7.21 a.m., the cockpit voice recorder, or the CVR, picked up continuously recorded broadcasts by the Airport Terminal Information Service for traffic. All normal. So basically, they had their radio on, and they were paying attention to air traffic in the area. Okay. All right. To quote Philip Gerard's series on OurState.com, around 7.22 a.m., the Traffic Controller Center clearance for Flight 212 to descend to 8,000 feet. And within a minute, the autopilot disengaged with an audible sound. First Officer Daniels had taken manual control of the aircraft. Mm. For the next few minutes, Captain Reeves responds to directions from Charlotte Approach Control, confirming altitude and approach path. And the crew completes a quick in-range checklist. So it seems like things are going well. It certainly does. It doesn't appear that anything is out of the norm. Okay. At 725, Flight 212 is cleared for the final approach to Runway 36 in Charlotte, where the five other planes have already landed safely that morning. Okay. So everything to me feels good. I don't know where things went wrong. Please. I mean, come on. What's happening here? During the crew's technical conversation about adjusting course and setting angles, there's another conversation happening that the NTSB determined to be, quote, non-pertinent to the operation of the aircraft. What would be non-pertinent to the operation of the aircraft? That's a good question. The air traffic control radios Flight 212 to make a left turn and then descend and hold at 4,000 feet. At this point, they cross something called the Ross Intersection, about five miles south of the runway. And Jill, this is a fixed indicator that marks a place when the plane should be preparing to land by evening out and approaching the airport, correct? Right, because usually when a plane is descending, the, the nose is down. So when you hit the Ross Intersection, apparently you're supposed to level out. Okay, right, because you don't land with your nose down, obviously. No, you're not. You're not supposed to. God, (laughs) I cannot have this conversation. (laughs) Okay, go on. Go on. At that point, Captain Reeves calls out the correct minimum altitude required in the glide path. He says Ross 5.5-1800. But Jill, um, he's reading the figure from the wrong instrument. Jesus Christ. He's reading altimeter number two. 1,800 feet, which indicates altitude above sea level. But the altimeter number one is the one he should have been referring to, and that displays altitude above field level. Oh, that's different. That's different. And field level means ground. (laughs) Means ground. You are close to ground. I mean, who really cares where the sea is right now? Yeah, you're flying over ground. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Just breathe. I know this is hard. (laughs) I so can triggered. feel your anxiety level going up. I'm so triggered. I like. I have goosebumps. I'm like literally needing a Xanax. Okay, go oh. on. I can do this. I can do this. Within seconds, a terrain warning sounds and alert tone, along with oh. blinking lights. Well, surely Jennifer, that would have That's indicated an alarm. To the- oh my That's god! That's an alarm. So it's oh it's god. a warning alarm, and it's so blinking me lights. and the plane are alarmed. <laughs> is what yes. you're saying? Me and the plane yes. are freaking out, and then it goes silent. 
And the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, reported later that the tone and the lights were canceled by one of the pilots. Oh, my God. They manually turned it off. Oh, my God. Okay. 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 That's not a good sign. I don't know what you're thinking, but that's not a good sign. No. The DC-9 passed the designated final fixed approach towards the runway at an airspeed of 168 knots. And apparently the flight crew was unaware that the plane was 450 feet below the safe minimum altitude for landing. Wow. At 733.52, Captain Reeves radioed air traffic control saying, yes, we're ready. Then he says to Daniels, his co-pilot, now all we need to do is find the airport. Mm-mm. How can you be ready if you don't know where the airport is? Oh, my God. Five seconds later, the DC-9 struck the ground in a wooded area 3.3 miles short of the runway. The aircraft careened across a field and into a heavily forested area. The plane settled 1,000 feet from the initial impact point with its right wing and tail section torn off and fuel gushing onto the forest floor. Jill, the passengers were trapped. They were trapped by burning jet fuel or trees that prevented the exit doors from opening. Oh, my God. You know what? Like... Merciful Lord, I would so much rather these people died on impact than be stuck in that plane with no way out. Oh, my God. There would be 10 survivors. One of them was First Officer Daniels. He suffered severe impact injuries to both of his legs and some minor body lacerations, but he survived. And also surviving was stewardess Colette Watson. She had only minor injuries, miraculously. Oh, my God. Worst case scenario. But I still have so many questions. This is, it just seems like everything was so routine. What could have possibly happened? The NTSB said that the extraneous conversation conducted by the flight crew during the descent was symptomatic of a lax atmosphere in the cockpit. Here it is again. Which continued throughout the approach. Okay. Let's talk about this for a second, because I think you read something really interesting about the history of flight. I know. And how early flights were a much different experience than they are today or than they were in 1974. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, because, and think about it, we already talked about Captain Reed. He had grown up in this industry. So he, in the beginning of his commercial flying, would have been sitting in a very loud area, an area by which like the airplanes like shh and all those noises. Noisy, shaking, like feeling mm -hmm. like you're in the air sort of environment. But in 1974, with such a big plane like the DC-9, they actually called it a whisper jet. Ooh. So it was quiet. It was quiet. Okay, so the difference would be like driving in a Lexus, versus driving in a what, Jill? Uh, 1974 Jeep. All right, there you go. 
So in one, you really get the experience of the wind and the the sounds of the road and the shaking, right? Mm, and in the exactly. other, it's like a smooth, smooth ride. Mm-hmm. And because the experience in the cockpit has drastically changed from noisy, rough to like this quiet, inviting, relaxed area, there is less noise. They're pretty much like chilling. Yeah, it's kind of an office setting now. Mm-hmm. You just happen to be flying in the sky. But there is that terrain warning sound alert, which would have like shocked me into paying attention or not like having a lax conversation. Exactly. That noise alert with the blinking lights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the NTSB confirmed that those were ignored and turned off by the by the crew. I don't understand that, but please continue. <sighs> The NTSB said that the plane was flying much too low and much too fast. Okay. Also, there are certain required callouts that are apparently supposed to have been made at the final approach fix. For example, at an altitude of 500 feet above field level or 100 feet above minimum descent altitude. And those were not called out. Mm-mm-mm. So they weren't following protocols. Right. So what was the probable cause, you might ask? Do you want to gander a guess? I don't understand because what I'm hearing is everything was normal and the pilots were just chilling and weren't really doing what they were supposed to be doing to land the plane safety, which seems like, what are you saying? Like, how, what does that even look like? Like, how are you not doing what you should be doing to land a plane? Like, you're flying a plane. Right. You have one job here. You have one job. Like, you you fly the plane. Right. The probable cause, as found by the NTSB, was the flight crew's complete lack of altitude awareness. They had no idea where they were in the sky at critical points during the approach due to, again, poor cockpit discipline. We need to look at this fuckery and what it actually means, because I hear you saying these words and I get it. Like the NTSB is like they were distracted. They were had a lax atmosphere. What does that actually look like? There are no iPhones. They're not texting. So do you want to take a look at what they were actually talking about five minutes before the crash? Yeah. What were they doing? I mean, do they have the Yahtzee handheld game? What is happening? All right. Let's stop here and take a look at those transcripts. Right. I heard this morning the news while I was because you can't have a number of pardons for Nixon and the Watergate people. Old Ford's beginning to take some of his hard knocks. Eastern 212, turn left, headed 240. 240, Eastern 212, at 6. Eastern 212. All right, down to 4. 15 degrees, please. Eastern 212, contact Charlotte Approach. Good day. Charlotte Approach, Eastern 212. We are turning 240. Eastern 212, continue heading to 240 degree and maintain 3000. All right, on down to three. One thing that kills me is the mess and all the going on now. We should be taking some definite direction to save the country. And Arabs are taking over every thing and they bought, they got so much real estate, so much land. They bought an island for $17 million off of Carolina. Stock market and the Swiss are going to sink our dollar gold over there. Okay. Yes, sir, boy. They got the money, don't they? They got so much money. That stuff coming in at such a fantastic rate. Yeah, I think if they don't do something by 1980, they'll own the world. They owned it all at one time. 
That's right. I'd be willing to go back to one-to-one -one car, ain't I? A lot of other restrictions if we can get something going. Yeah. Get rid of all my little ones. Just as well. I'm car poor. I got, well, just two now. I gave one to my boy, but I'm buying this one new. Eastern 212, turn right, heading 350, cleared for 36 approach. You are six miles south of the Ross intersection. Okay, 350, cleared for approach. There's Carowinds, I think that's what. Eastern 212, you... Tower 131. 131, 212, good day. Hello, A.B. Charlotte. Tower Eastern 212, we are here about five miles south of Ross. Eastern 212, continue. Ross 5.5-1800. Carowinds. Uh, that tower? Would that tower be it or not? No, I... Carowinds, I don't think it is. We're too far. We're too far in. Carowinds in the back of us. I believe it is. By... That looks like it. You know it's... Carowinds. Yes, that's the tower. Gear down, please, before landing. That's what it is. That's Carowinds there. Radar's up. 394. There's, uh, Ross. Now we can go down. How about 50 degrees, please? 50. Eastern 212 by Ross. Eastern 212 clear to land 36. Yes, we are all ready. Now all we need to do is find the airport. At 7.33 and 57 seconds, sound of initial impact. So, um, during that whole Carowind conversation, dude, the plane is dropping and dropping and dropping. And I don't understand why it's important for them to see this tower. When I read that, I thought that the Carowinds was some sort of important indicator to pilots. Like the way they kept referring to Carowinds is that Carowinds. Do you do you know what Carowinds is? No, tell me. Well, I know from my research, but tell our yeah. listeners. Carowinds is a amusement park. And the tower that they were looking at was is a ride, essentially, that goes up and you can see several states from the top of it. Now, in 1974, it would have been a new thing. It would have been a, a tourist attraction and something cool to see. Mm -mm. But it wasn't what I thought it was. And we have uh, we have another uh, another clip here, don't we, Jill? We do. So my good friend Sandy's husband is a commercial air airline pilot and he would rather us not use his name so we're going to refer to him as Mr. Sandy and I had him look at the NTSB report in the transcript and he kind of explained in a nutshell from his expertise what was happening during this time and what was important to the cockpit crew at the time oh cool so should we play it for them here yes and thank you so much sandy and family for letting me barge in on your husband's one day off this week so we can have this conversation yeah and that's a good point listeners you are going to hear his little boy in the background you're going to hear sandy cooking dinner so please bear with us because this is some really good insight from someone who's not only a commercial airline pilot but also has experience on the dc9 so enjoy 
Have you heard about this flight incident before? I probably studied it in college or whatever. I read through the CBR and I didn't bring out any memories or anything. So they're flying and it's uneventful until it's time for them to land. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was nothing going on. Otherwise, they would have said something. So they're approaching the airport. And the criticism from the NTSB was that there wasn't any calls coming out. What are the calls? There's awareness calls. So, for example, at 1,000 feet above your intended landing runway, we have an 1,000 feet clear to land all green. So when they call the altitude, the air traffic control confirms it? No. It's just between the two pilots. For oh, awareness. really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now... I thought the call was, like, to the tower, but it's between the two. No, it's an awareness call between the two pilots, so basically you don't get distracted or get lost when you're flying the airplane that you think you're at a different altitude than you are. Okay. They're all altitude calls. Oh, okay. Now, I noticed the co-pilot, who I think was not flying... No, the co-pilot was flying. Well, the co-pilot was flying. Mm-hmm. Well, he kept saying, I think we just crossed, I think it's called Ross, which is... The Ross intersection. I was going to ask you about that. Which is the outer marker. So on that approach, their VORs on the field in Charlotte, they're coming in. They got vectored and turned and turned and they cleared them. What went wrong was their altitude. They had had to keep minimum altitudes. We rarely do these kind of approaches they were doing, but it was common back then. So they would go down to a certain altitude, turn back in. They were given two more altitude step downs, Mm -hmm. 3,000, I think, and then... 2,500 maybe. But then when they crossed Ross, which is the outer marker, they can go down what's called a minimum descent altitude. So when they go down that minimum descent altitude, it's their discretion on how they want to go down. But once they hit that minimum descent altitude, which I think was 1150, they're supposed to level out. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that. They kind of hovered there for a second. And then somebody said, I just got to find the airport. That was the captain. Which means... He missed a call out to say minimums. I never saw that. He should have said minimums or at minimums. And that's when you're supposed to level out. If you don't see the airport, you're supposed to fly power was- around. And there's a point on that approach. It would have been when they pass over the VOR, which you'll see in their instrument, there's a flight. What does VOR stand for? VHF Omni Ranging. It's basically an FM radio station. Okay. That's the one that will flag you in. Yeah. Okay. But it also has a, it has an arrow that points 360 degrees and so you can if you're, dial that in mm-hmm. and out center. The other thing is it has a two from flag. It has two flags, two and from. You're either flying towards it or you're flying away from it. Okay. And when, when that goes from to to from, which was on the field, they passed over it. And that was their missed approach point, I believe, on that. Normally, it's that. So that's when they passed the airport. Yeah. So the what U-R. is the Ross intersection? It's just a predetermined point at a certain distance on that radial away from that VOR. So it's about seven, eight miles south of Charlotte. Is it a visual thing? On no. The, no, it's no. just a... You, you know, you... Figure it out where it's at on your instruments. Okay. So now these guys are coming in. Talking about politics and then they start talking know. about cars. Watergate, which yeah. is fascinating. Right. But it really was fascinating. That kind of stuff still happens. You're not supposed to talk below 10,000 feet about other stuff that's not related to the flight. The sterile cockpit girl. Right. Nowadays, when you're flying under 10,000 feet, are you flying? Yeah. Oh, you are flying. Okay. I mean, the autopilot could be on, but you're still you're still turning knobs and direct. You may not be like the airplane I fly. You don't directly manipulate the controls. I don't go through computer systems. 
It sounds like he but was direct. That one, that was a DC-9. I used to fly that. That was the first airplane that flew at Northwest. Uh-huh. They're directly through cables connected so, to the flight control. But so he, he was literally flying the plane. It sounded like it, yeah, that whoever was flying was actually flying the airplane. Sticking rudder flying, which back then that was normal. So now they're coming in. They missed their altitude points. Is there a point of no return? Like if they were doing the calls, would there be time between the Ross intersection and the impact point where they could have redirected and pulled up even with the checklist? Oh, Oh, really? When would have been the point of no return? What do you mean the point of no return as far as... Is there, if they're coming down, let's just say, if instead of them looking for the Carowind Tower, if they were like doing their calls and they realized that they were too low, would they have been able to to pull up again, even with their flaps in position to... Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, you had full power, you throw up a notch of flaps, you go, once you start going up, you throw the landing gear up and you're out of there. Okay. I mean, their jets are going to go. So let's break down exactly what the NTSB said about this approach when they analyzed this five minutes that changed these people's lives. At 7.32, as the flight intercepted the inbound approach, the flight crew commenced a discussion about that Carowinds Tower, which was located ahead into the left of the projected flight path. So basically, they're looking out the window. And that Mm. discussion lasts 35 seconds. 35 seconds, during which they make 12 remarks, looking out the window, through the fog, trying to find an amusement park ride. You know, it seems to me, to be honest, that if if they were just sightseeing and they weren't using it as some kind of indicator, right. then it wouldn't have been so important to have that conversation. Do you see what yeah, I mean? I see what you mean. Just, they shouldn't have been looking out the window at all. They have instruments. They have technical instruments that are supposed to tell them where they are in space and right. time as they're approaching. And they were ignoring those. This particular distraction is significant because during this time, the aircraft descended through 1,800 feet, which is the minimum minimum safe altitude that should have been maintained while it was crossing the Ross intersection. It seems like the captain was so focused on the Carowinds because this whole time he's not looking at his instruments and he's not doing the calls, which we learned from Mr. Sandy is important to procedures because those calls would have indicated like, yeah, you're not in the right space. Well, remember, too, that when he did look at his equipment, he read it wrong. So he thought that he was higher up than he actually was. He was in the fog. If he would have realized that he read his instruments wrong, if he would have been doing the call outs with his co-pilot instead of talking about Arabs and used cars and Mm -hmm. the Carowinds Tower, he might have realized that he was not as high up as he thought he was. Another thing that's noteworthy is that on 7.32 and 41 seconds, during the later part of the conversation regarding the tower, the Carowinds Tower, the terrain warning alert sounded. Yes. What the hell? I know, I know. And they turned it off. Based on Daniel's testimony taken in the hearing to discuss what happened during this ill-fated flight. yeah. Daniel said most crews and pilots look at that terrain warning signal as more of a nuisance than an indicator of something's wrong. Okay. I actually have to say I kind of get that. Because, okay, so you know I have this Toyota. And you do have it a Toyota. It has all of the safety features. 
including Mm -hmm. the alarm that goes off when I'm too close to something. But every day when I routinely pull into my garage, my Toyota's like, you're going to hit the bike. You're going to hit the bike. You're going to hit the bike. And I'm like, Toyota, I know I'm going into the garage. And it's like, no, you're going to hit the bike. You know what I mean? And it freaks out. And every time I'm like, okay, and I turn it off because I know the bike is there because I know I'm getting close to the bike. I'm not going to hit the bike, Toyota. I get it. So I can see if a pilot is like, yeah, I know we're getting close to the ground plane. We're going to land now. Like to me, I I think that that's a, a fair analogy. I disagree 150% really? because, yeah, because, okay, so yes, I have a Toyota too. <laughs> Does yours scream at you? My Toyota goes absolutely batshit crazy when I'm doing a car wash, oh, when I'm like yes. driving through. It's like everything's like, oh my God. <laughs> right. Okay, like totally understand. But if I have that same noise when I'm driving down the street, when I'm pulling out, I would consider it a a warning. Of course you would. But these two pilots assumed that everything was routine and they knew they were coming down to land. I disagree with you because if he felt like everything was routine, then he wouldn't have been confused by the tower. That's true. That is true. So... You have this alarm going off and you don't know where the hell you are. Now, granted, the tower's new, but he's familiar enough with it to know to where to look for it in the sky. Right. I agree. They shouldn't have turned off those alarms, especially because they really didn't know where they were. They weren't focused on the right things. They should have paid attention. 100% turn off the alarm. Turn off the alarm. It's annoying. But check your friggin' instruments. Instead of checking his instruments, his his head was still out the window being like, wait, is that the tower? I don't know. Is that the this is so silly tower? Like they should have been just <laughs> looking at the instruments. It's like they were cheating. And according to the NTSB, as soon as the Carowinds tower conversation was terminated at 7.32 a.m. and 48 mm-hmm. seconds, the rate of descent of the aircraft was slowed from 1,500 per minute to less than 300 per minute. This descent rate deduction may have been a reflection of Daniels looking at his instruments and not paying attention to the tower and what was going on outside the cockpit. Right. That's really telling because while they're looking out the windows and talking about the Carowinds Tower, they're descending at a really rapid rate and they don't realize it. And then at the end of that conversation, Daniels probably looks at his his instruments and says, whoa, and levels off. He's a like, bit. oh, shit. Right. <laughs> right. This might be the first time he's actually pulling his head very slowly and gently out of his sphincter. Out of his ass. <laughs> Oh, but it's not enough, obviously. The NTSB board, after looking at all the evidence, was unable to determine the precise reason for almost the entire lack of altitude awareness on the part of the flight crew during the approach. However... (laughs) They do say that there were contributing factors like, guys, I know it's called fuckery. (laughs) The fuckery happening is the reason why they were not aware of their altitude. And that's what's so tragic about this. I know. Oh, my gosh. There was no reason for all those people to die. There was absolutely no, no real reason except for two people who weren't paying attention to what they were supposed to be doing. Mm mm mm. This is one of the the attributing factors. And this is why I say it seems like they were cheating because the NTSB confirms that by their actions and the way the flight descent happened, that it seems like the crew were relying on visual clues of the terrain and not their instruments. Right. 
See, this is the fuckery. It's consistent with the conversation of the tower. That's why the tower conversation was so important to the captain. And then the captain's remarks before impact, all we need to do is find the airport. Um, okay. This explains why ultimately when the aircraft penetrated the dense fog around the accident site, their visual references would have been lost. And if they were to switch to using their instruments, they wouldn't have time to figure it out via the instruments what where they actually were in space and time. So this is why their flight crashed while the other five had landed safely is because they came into the fog too fast, too low, and they couldn't see the ground anymore and they were never paying attention to their instruments during the descent. Exactly. Another possible reason the NTSB gave for the total lack of altitude awareness involves the relationship between the sea level and the field level gauges, right? right? The fact is that the captain, so he was looking at the wrong gauge and the NTSB said that most likely he did that because the sea level gauge is larger on the display than the field gauge. So if you're just glancing wow. and not really paying attention, that wow. was like the first thing that stuck out. But on Jill, him. also they didn't do the call outs that they should have been doing to each other. And if he had followed protocol and said, now we're at this level, now we're at the and made the other the first officer respond, they might have tuned into the fact that they were not using the right instrument. Exactly. Because instead of just glancing and use and looking at the instruments, he would have had a series of available chances to deter this yes, plane. to correct their assumptions about where they were. And like Mr. Sandy said, it's a jet. If they if they were like, where am I? I we are too low. They could have pulled up at any time and re oh, reapproached. And that is the real tragedy. Because like you had asked him, and I love that you asked him about what was what was the point during this situation where it was too late and literally there was no point at any point before impact they could have pulled up they could have figured it out i know that's the that's the part that gives me goosebumps so after all of this the ntsb had some recommendations what'd they say They recommended something called the sterile cockpit rule. And Mr. Sandy does refer to this. But basically, there are three times when it's recommended that you do nothing but focus on the plane. And that's when you are taking off, when you are landing, and when you're taxiing. That means no other duties No other conversations can be happening except those actions and words necessary for flying the plane. The operation of the aircraft. Absolutely. So they just made a recommendation. It was never like a regulation or a law. It was just a recommendation after this crash in 1974. It wouldn't become a regulation until 1981. It's a long time. It is a long time. And between that time, between 1974 and 1981, there was more cockpit fuckery happening that would attribute to crashes. However, however, there are no other flights that I could find that crashed solely because of the non-pertinent conversations happening that would distract the pilots so thoroughly that they would be lost to where they were. Well, I will say this. I think that if you're not using your instruments and you're only using visual clues, I think the Carowind conversation was pertinent. The problem is this 
They weren't using their instruments. They were cheating. They were trying to use the visual clues, even though it was foggy. And sometimes in a fog, Mr. Sandy told me that you can dip below or go above the clouds and you can still see the land. Mm. So it seems like they were trying to play that game. Yes. Uh, Okay. So who do you think is the voiceless in our story? I know who the voiceless is, Jennifer. Oh, please, please explain. Captain Reeves. Ooh, the captain who perished. That's right. He went down with the ship. Do you feel like he's taking responsibility? He takes full responsibility. Really? Yes. And if I believe that if anyone was going to die that day, which he would rather no one had, he's glad that he did. Wow. You know what I mean? Like he couldn't live with himself knowing that this happened on his watch. Well, you know what? Good on him because honestly, it was his responsibility. He was the one in charge of that cockpit. It wasn't Daniels. Daniels was the second in command. He should be taking responsibility for not only the landing phase of the flight, for the distractions, for the lax atmosphere. When I was reading the NTSB report, there was handwritten notes on it, like someone analyzed the report and then scanned it to public record. Yeah. And during that analysis of the NTSB report, someone wrote that first officer Daniels took control of the descent manually because Captain Rees was too tired. Oh. By him changing shifts to accommodate his birthday plans, it left him with only 13 hours between flights. So Daniels, for an example, had 64 hours between flights. So he didn't get enough rest time, and that's why it was Daniels manually flying the descent. And how doubly tragic for his family, because in a couple days, they were planning to celebrate his birthday, but instead they were planning his funeral. Also, side note, during the hearing, First Officer Daniels was asked about the operation of the aircraft, and Daniels said that he believed in his estimation that they flew according to regulations and procedures. Just going to leave that there. Just going to leave it there. I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just leaving it there. So it appears for this one that our hits were pretty literal. Yeah. John Denver, he had died in a plane crash. That's right. What about your Elton John, Daniel? Oh my gosh, Spirit. This works on so many different levels. One. Sometimes Spirit's clever. One, it's about a plane crash. Two, the name Daniel For Daniels, it's the same name, you know, of the co-pilot. And three, that idea of someone's brother dying. There is someone famous whose brothers and father died on that flight. That goes with the children being traumatized and notable people on the flight. Among the fatalities was the president of Economic Affairs of Medical University of South Carolina, James William Colbert, Jr., You would probably recognize the surname better as Colbert. It's Stephen Colbert's father and his two brothers were on that flight and perished. Oh, my gosh. Also, John Merriman, news editor for the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite, perished on that flight. Oh, my goodness. What about the male voice as the voiceless? Well, I think that's obvious that the voiceless coming through was Captain Reeves, for sure. And how can we be so sure? Well, because his full name was James Edward Reeves, 
And our father's name was James Edward. And you were picking up on a family name leading us to this story. And there it is. Mm. Also, the street near the crash site was Tryon Street. Which is also a family name. Mm-hmm. Spirit did us right. I mean, these breadcrumbs, <laughs> when we, there's so many, you know, if you Google North Carolina plane crashes, there are pages and pages of pages, you know, of all kind of minor and major crashes. But when we hit on this one, it was so true to the information we were getting. We knew this was our story. So thank you, Spirit, 100%. for coming through again. Why this story and what is your takeaway for today? Well, I will say this. It's very important for anyone who is in charge of flying a plane to pay attention to what they're doing, even though the task at hand might seem ordinary or routine after you do it a number of times. Well, the thing is, is that Captain Reese was experienced. Right. All his work, he spent more than 30 years, more than half of his life or the majority of his life flying, that he was so relaxed behind or in the cockpit is a testament to his experience, but that worked against him. It was almost hubris. Right. Most people don't fly planes, but most people do drive cars. And as Mm. we know, car crashes are much, much, much more common than plane crashes. And I know that sometimes, and I'll speak for myself, behind the wheel, I am much too relaxed when I should be more alert. No, seriously, don't you think like with cell phones and the radio and eating fast food on the road, a lot of times we don't realize that we are in a potentially deadly vehicle. To me, you're absolutely right. This to me screams, Jill, slow down. Mm -hmm. Put your phone down. Put your phone down. Pay attention to the road. Pull over if you need to email, if you need to reference something and really take seriously not only the impact that you're driving and your attention on your own life. Exactly. On your own life. But but others. Yes. But others. Ooh, Jill, this was a heavy one. This was a heavy one. But hey, shout out to our husbands, Chad Stanley and Dennis James for their voice acting debut Thanks, guys. (laughs) Will you be able to tell our listeners a little bit about our Patreon? Sure. So if you like what we do and you want to support us, you can please check out our Patreon page and you'll get bonus content for pledging a donation monthly. Thanks, Jill. (laughs) Tell the people where else they can find us. Please check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on Facebook. Instagram and Twitter at Common Mystics Podcast. But if you happen to be on Apple, please leave us a positive review so other people can find us. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye.